Open your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 23, and we're going to look at God's calendar. You all know God is a calendar? We probably don't have calendars anymore, right? I used to put mine on the refrigerator, Pebble Beach, Augusta National. You probably had dogs and cats, right? Uh, God's calendar was digital a long time ago, right? And I'll bet you he had your picture on there, right? I, the, the Grand Canyon's his handiwork. You're the apple of his eye. God has a calendar. Let's look at it. Leviticus chapter 23, verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the children of Israel and say to them, the feast of the Lord, which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations. God said, these are my feasts. Six days you shall work. Seventh is a day of rest, a Sabbath, a holy convocation. You shall do no work in it. It is the Sabbath of the Lord in all your dwellings. So even though the Sabbath has been celebrated, it's codified now here in the law. And now the feast days begin. Passover and unleavened bread, verse 4, these are the feasts of the Lord. Notice the repeat here. They're holy convocations, which you shall proclaim at appointed times. These are set times, God said. They, most of them are lunar. On the 14th day of the first month at twilight is the Lord's Passover. And on the 15th day of the same month is unleavened bread. Skip down to verse 9. Lord said to Moses, speak to Israel. When you come into the land which I give you and reap its harvest... You shall bring a sheaf of first fruits of the harvest of the priest. So uh, this was the feast of first fruits. Verse 15 is the feast of weeks. Uh, you know what is Pentecost. You shall count for yourselves from the day after the Sabbath. From the day you brought the sheaf of the wave offering, seven Sabbaths shall be completed. So 49 days. And on uh, the 50th day of the seventh Sabbath, then you shall offer a new grain offering to the Lord. Uh, verse 23 is the Feast of Trumpets. Speak to the children of Israel. Seventh month. This is now the fall, the first day of the month. You shall have a Sabbath rest, a memorial of blowing of trumpets. And again, God said this is a holy day or where we get holiday. No work. Yay. And you shall make an offering of fire to the Lord. And verse 26, the most solemn day in all of Israel, the Day of Atonement. Tenth day of the seventh month shall be the day of atonement. It shall be a holy convocation for you. You shall afflict your souls. Um, there's fasting and so forth. God gives all the detail there. And then finally, verse 33, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the children of Israel, uh, that there would be a feast of tabernacles. Seven feasts unto the Lord. When we started Leviticus, I said this was my favorite study in all the Bible. And a lot of you thought I was putting on, right? You thought, oh, Pastor Bob's exaggerating. He just wants to get us through Leviticus, get us excited. Seriously, this is my favorite Bible study. I don't know how it's going to come out, but it's my favorite Bible study. And it's my favorite Bible study because, again, it's God's calendar. What does that mean? How could God have a calendar? Well, you've heard it repeated a couple times, right? God says, number one, these are my feasts. Now, God's not against other feasts. If you like St. Patrick's Day or the 4th of July, great, have at it, right? God said, you can have all the feasts you want. You can celebrate whatever you want. These seven are mine. By the way, the Christian calendar of Easter and Lent and Christmas and all that, they're all great. None of them prescribed by God. None of them in the New Testament. New Testament says don't, you know, don't have one day over another. Christ is the reality, right? So, no, 
God said, these are mine. These are eternal. These are my feasts. Second of all, they're holy convocations. Uh, the word holy means set apart. There's something that would make Israel unique, like Sabbath, circumcision, the law. All the other nations, this would make them unique. And by the way, they have celebrated these feasts and vibrantly to this day for 3,500 years. And then finally, it's at the appointed time or the set time. I spend most of my time talking about that. That is God's calendar. One writer said the catechism of the Jew consists of his calendar. On the pinions of time which bear us through life, God has inscribed the eternal words, listen to this, of his soul-inspiring doctrine, making days and weeks, months and years, the heralds to proclaim his truths. Nothing would seem more fleeting than these elements of time, but to them God entrusted the care of holy things, thereby rendering them more imperishable and more accessible than any mouth of priests any monument, temple, or altar could have ever done. Here's the reality. Priests die, monuments decay, the temple's not even in Jerusalem anymore. Temples and altars fall into disrepair, but time remains forever, and every newborn day emerges fresh and vigorous from its bosom. This is why the Jews scattered all around the world remained Jewish. They, they kept their identity uh, they didn't need a temple in Jerusalem. They didn't need all the things we need to touch and feel and altars and such. They had the reality. They had the law of God. They had the feast days. They ate kosher. God had made them holy. They were set apart. Now, before I get into the feasts, I got to talk about holiness. When we started Leviticus, you know, I've been quoting, be holy, God said, for I am holy. And uh, he wouldn't say it if it wasn't possible. And yet when we hear it, we get a little queasy, right? Maybe I get queasy. Uh, if I came in and said, God is love, ah, be like a, the sun just rose, right? Be so refreshing, right? Who won't want to teach on the love of God? When I say God is love, uh, you probably do one of two things. You think of the most loving act you've ever seen, right? So we all watch these television shows where like a mom lifts a car up to save a child or something like that. And you think, oh my gosh, or you think of the most loving person in your life, and then you say, well, God's 10x of that, so wow, God is love. I'll just bask in that for a while. That's beautiful. Uh, what about God is merciful? Yeah, that's wonderful too, right? Think of a judge letting off the most hardened criminal, and think of times where you got off with mercy, and someone gave it to you, and you think, well, God's 10x of that. Yeah, yeah, I like mercy. But when you hear holiness, you kind of recoil, right? Because there ain't no one out there holy, last time I checked, right? There's a lot of people we look up to, but we know they're not holy intrinsically like God is. Uh, and then there's the idea that I have to be holy. Oh, my gosh. You know, when I hear this, I feel like a worm, a scoundrel, right? I feel like Isaiah. When he saw the Lord high and lifted up. By the way, when people see God, we sang earlier that every knee will bow. Every knee will bow at Jesus Christ. There'll be no arguments, right? No Richard Dawkins arguments when you see Christ. No arguments about, well, I didn't know. Uh, you're going to be like Isaiah, where he said, I'm undone. I have unclean lips. I dwell amongst a people. No, no arguments, a people of unclean lips. 
See, God's holiness is so pure, it's so whole, it's so otherworldly. Um, but let me put it in context, because I think it makes us queasy. Leviticus 11.45, he says, For I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. That's a big difference. Consecrate yourselves, be holy, for I am holy. Now, how do, how do we be holy? Uh, God alone is holy, right? Exodus, who alone is like the Lord among all the gods, glorious in holiness. Job said, even the sun, moon, stars are impure in God's sight. Psalm 22 said, thou art holy, who inhabits the praises of Israel. But in that context, it makes sense, right? God said, look, I took you out of bondage. You know what bondage is. Why would you ever want to go back? So therefore, be holy, for I am holy. God said, look, I brought you into a new reality. I am holy and pure. That needs to be your new identity. Now, here's where we go awry. When we hear holiness, right away we think performance. Right away we think lifestyle. Right away we think the way we live, and that leads to legalism. Almost everybody in this room has been legalized at some point or another, or, well, if you go here, you won't be, but maybe you'll be in somewhere in your journey, right? Legalism has failed, and the only thing it's ever tried to do, make people holy. It's like a kid raised in a family where the parents decide not to have a television. That's a wonderful decision if that's what you decide. However, if that child's not taught why there's not a television, when they go to a friend's house, they can become like a fiend, right? They could want to watch 10 times more TV than the kid that has the TV. That's what legalism done, has done. It's the legacy of legalism, performance. Now, I love what Dallas Willard said. Dallas Willard said, grace isn't opposed to effort, it's opposed to earning. You're never going to earn God's favor. You're never going to be holy because you perform. Is that, that's the idea. Here's kind of the nugget you need to take away. Something is holy because God got involved with it. Does everybody understand that? Something is holy because God got involved with it. I'll give you an example. God told Moses, take off your sandals. Why? You're standing on holy ground. Well, the ground wasn't holy before the bush began to burn. But when God got involved with it, it became holy ground, right? Um, the tabernacle, the utensils, the animals, the animals weren't holy until they were used in God's service. Even the priests only were holy in the sense that God was involved. See, it's, it's the identity now of the people of God. It was the identity for Israel, it's the identity for you and me. You're not be holy because of your performance, you're holy because of God's proclamation. I brought you out of the land of Egypt, be holy, for I am holy. Exodus 19.6, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. Isn't it amazing God wanted to put a priest in every house? Now you're looking at each other and thinking, man, I don't feel like a priest, I don't look like a priest. In fact, if you go up to youth group, my kids will say, uh, I don't act like a priest. But God said, you're a priest. God put two parents in every house and then said, okay, here's a priest. And here's a priest on the workplace and here's a priest in church comes right in the New Testament. Peter says the same thing. He quotes, be holy for I am holy. Paul writes to Timothy, God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but by his purpose and grace, he bestowed on us in Jesus Christ before the world began. So in the Old Testament, they had this law 
They, they realized that they were unholy, but they saw a sacrificial system. Now you and I, when we realize we're unholy, we see a cross. This is why the writer of Hebrews says, in light of God's mercies. In other words, when you look in the rearview mirror and see the cross, now you present yourself a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable God, and it's possible. In fact, the Bible says it's your reasonable service. We had the Henry Cloud webinar this week uh, where he talked about depression. It's like two hours just flew by. And it was so good. You know, I, I was just listening to Henry, and, he was, and, and I don't want to minimize what he said because he talked about, you know, some people need to go to a doctor and there's drugs, and I don't want to minimize depression, but he was just talking about how when you lay in bed and how these terrible thoughts come, how you just let them go. I, I, I just picture myself laying in bed watching, can't stop the thoughts, the fiery darts, I just, just watch them go by and begin to meditate on the things God has said about me that I'm holy and that I'm righteous, that I'm the apple of his eye, and every hair on my head is numbered. Now, this is always going to be a struggle as long as you're in the flesh. There's the world and the devil. It's always going to be, do I have sex tonight or a wonderful marriage tomorrow? Do I cheat now or have a great dignity later? When I look at the struggle of holiness, it always boils down to two things. I either don't trust God's present now or he's going to come through in the future. Those are the, that, that's, that's all the struggle, people. God's either not here for me now or he's not going to show up in the future, so I'm going to take matters in my own hand. Righteous behavior or holiness is a natural response for the God who called us. Since we have these promises, the New Testament says, Beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Now, I said all that because I feel like it may help somebody today. You know, somebody who's been legalized, somebody who struggles this, maybe you're a legalist. Maybe, maybe you're, you're your own worst enemy. Maybe you need to give yourself a break. I just feel like somebody needed help today. Now, the feasts were holy in and of themselves. See, that's the point. They were set apart unto God. The appointed times. Now listen to these Hebrew words. I'm probably mispronouncing them. I'm not a Hebrew scholar. I just look it up like you can. Moad means set times. So they were lunar feast at set times. But this word mikra means rehearsal. These feast days were a rehearsal for a future event. Wow. Now, I've done a lot of weddings, which means I've done a lot of rehearsals. Rehearsals are brutal you've ever been a part of one. In fact, I tell people, I'm like, it's going to be brutal tonight, right? Uh, people are late. They let these kids run wild, right? Can't, you know, the kids rule the roost, and I'm trying to walk people through this. Uh, everybody's worrying about where they're going that night. Nobody listens. So I say, guys, look, it's going to look brutal tonight. But tomorrow, when you're all dressed up and perfumed, we're all going to rise to the occasion. It's going to be wonderful. God will be here. Um, these feast days celebrated for 3,500 years were rehearsals. Every time they were celebrated, something future was being portrayed. Heralds of God's truth. The feast days had three components. They were celebratory, they were a reminder to Israel of their purpose, and they had a future fulfillment. I don't want to underscore the celebration. Life before God gave this to his people 
was difficult and hard. Now, you live in the West, you live in 2020, you're used to a calendar, right? You're used to holidays and living for the weekend. It wasn't that way. Uh, what was the occupation in Egypt? What was Israel's occupation in Egypt? Slaves. You work seven days a week. God comes along and says, try this on. Take one day off every week. Just don't, don't even cook. Just you're off, right? God said, how about seven days to look forward to? Every one of the feast days except Yom Kippur had feasting and celebration and laughter and fun. Uh, three of them, you would go to Jerusalem, all males, and you would sing the Psalms of Ascent, and you would spend a whole week, and you'd see people you haven't seen for a long time. The calendar does us good, right? In fact, I think we're three days away from, three weeks away from the clock changing, right? Spring won't be here. Don't get excited. It's still March in this part of the world. Um, but at least daylight will come, and we know spring's coming. We know Easter's coming. We know Fourth of July is coming, right? It's a, it's a rhythm God gave them. It was also a reminder of all he had done. Celebrate the Passover, a reminder that they, you know, for generations they were slaves in Egypt. It's like our 4th of July. We're supposed to be remembering that you know, we became a nation, except we're more worried about swimming and cookouts and all. We forget, right? It was a reminder to them. But generally, it was God's calendar. Now, time has blown my mind since I've been a little boy. Maybe it doesn't bother you. It wreaks havoc in my mind for some reason. Uh, if you want me to watch a movie, I'm a sucker for anything with time travel, like Interstellar or some kind of movie where people travel through time. A uh, real smart guy, I was preaching one time, and he said, when you die, you'll be getting to heaven at the same time as Moses. What? In other words, if God looks at time linear like a parade, well, Moses died here and you died here and you guys will get to heaven at the same time. That, that blows my mind, right? I don't get that. God's outside of time. I understand that. We're in time. But God has a calendar because we need a calendar. Genesis says in the beginning, Revelation tells us how it ends and everything in between. Most of God's calendar revolves around Jesus Christ. From the time man sinned, God, in the first prophecy in the Bible said, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The prophecy of a coming Messiah. Now, that wasn't arbitrary because Paul writes in Galatians that in the fullness of time, that Greek word is the exact time. In other words, the exact time God had on his day planner is when Jesus came. You know, God didn't look down and say, Man, it's getting pretty bad down there. I think I'll send Jesus, right? I think there's a show out today called The Messiah. Like, what if Jesus came now? He couldn't have come now. He came at the exact time, born of a woman, born under the law, that he might redeem us. Daniel goes a step further in chapter 9, giving us the exact years, 77, 77-year periods. The Jews look at time in sevens, not decades, Right? So the year of Jubilee is seven, seven-year periods, 49 years, 50th year of Jubilee. 490 years or 77, 69 of those seven-year periods would bring us to the Messiah. And listen, he will be cut off. That word means dead. He would be wiped out. We know crucified. 
Daniel left us one dangling seven-year period in human history on God's calendar, and that's in the book of Revelation 6 to 13. Jesus said in Matthew 24, when you see all these things, know the end is near. Acts 1.8, Lord, will you now restore the kingdom of Israel? Jesus said, it's not for you to know epics or times and seasons which God has on his calendar. God has a calendar. God told us he won't do anything until he tells us what he's up to. So the Feast of Israel becomes God's calendar. Now, I'm going to run through the first four because we've done many of these, and they're all fulfilled in Jesus in his first coming. So we start with the first one, Passover. Well, we just did this in Exodus 12. Uh, this is bringing them out of Egypt. Uh, it's tied with unleavened bread. They ate in haste. Uh, it wasn't time for the leaven to leaven the bread. Uh, the centerpiece is the lamb, right? Uh, Josephus said in the time of Jesus, over a quarter million lambs would be slain. Uh, this feast was fulfilled in Jesus when John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Paul in 1 Corinthians 5-7 couldn't have said it any simpler. Christ, our Passover Lamb, was sacrificed. When Jesus at the Last Supper sat there with the disciples, they were having a Passover Seder. And Jesus replaced it. He said, this is the final Passover heaven will acknowledge. And he said, for now on, Whenever you take the cup, whenever you take the bread, you will celebrate my death until I come. And so Jesus fulfilled Passover. Uh, the next feast after Passover and unleavened bread was the feast of first fruits. This is where the priest would take the first of the harvest, he would wave a sheaf before God with a sign that he was believing God would bring the rest, right? Now, aside from the fulfillment of this, there's kind of a life lesson here, guys. Uh, a lot of you live by this and have lived by it well. So we live in a world where people are saying, you better put money in a 401k. Better put money in retirement. You know, we all need millions for like the last three years of our life. And um, that's wise, right? Listen to Dave Ramsey, get a 401k, spend your child's inheritance, do whatever you want, okay? But I'm going to give you another piece of information. Jesus said your life doesn't consist of the abundance of the things you possess. Jesus said where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be. Proverbs 3, 9 says, honor the Lord, honor God. With your possessions, and listen to this, the first fruits of all your increase. Why? Because God's a little short this month? Church can't pay its bills? No. So that your barns would be filled with plenty, and your vats would overflow with new wine. Man, if Christians could ever get into this mindset that giving's not about going to church or putting money in an offering, but giving is getting in sync with God. God's a giver. Uh, there's a statistic, uh, it's anecdotal. Uh, I don't know if it's true. Uh, but somebody did a study that at major evangelical Christian conferences, they polled all the restaurants around and that Christians actually tip worse than unbelievers. How could that be? 
Proverbs 3, 9 says, get into the game with God. Give and watch him resupply so you can give and watch him resupply. My son's going to teach on generosity in a few weeks, one of the best uh, messages I've ever heard on the subject. Um, really look forward to it. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, the famous resurrection passage. Paul said, now Christ is risen from the dead. We all know that. But he's become the first fruits of all those who have died. Now here's the logic. Each one in its own order. Christ, the first fruits. Afterward, those who were Christ that is coming. So the idea is if Christ, this is why the resurrection is important. If Christ rose from the dead, he's a prototype. A prototype means there's a whole bunch going to follow. That's good news for you and me, because when we die, we shall be resurrected. Now, when Jesus died, and this has only happened a handful of times, Passover, unleavened bread, and first fruits all happened in one weekend. How? Well, Jesus was killed at twilight, right? Uh, he was the Passover lamb on Friday. Saturday was unleavened bread. First fruits is the Sabbath after the first Passover. Uh, it only happens a handful of times, but it was the very next day, Sunday. Catch this. While the priest was waving his sheaf, Jesus had risen from the dead. And you and I defeated the last enemy. Death was swallowed up in victory. Romans 8 said the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead will raise your mortal body. Uh, during the COVID-19 crisis, people have come to grips with we're all going to die. That's all around us. Uh, we bury cancer people like we always have, people that died of this and that, just, just like any other time. People are dying left and right. It's just not COVID-19. Where are you on the whole death deal? What's COVID-19 done to you? Do you think more about death? Start thinking about the resurrection. Jesus is the future for those of us who will be raised from the dead. Uh, Shabbat is the feast of Pentecost. You know this one well. Uh, this is where, again, on the southern steps at the temple, uh, the people would bring their wheat offerings to God. A uh, wonderful celebration. It happened 50 days after the Passover. Of course, you know this feast because in Acts it says when the day of Pentecost, notice this, had fully come. The rehearsal was over. This was the, this was the actual day. Uh, remember what happened? 120 were in the upper room. Fire came. They spoke in tongues. Uh, there's a great parallel to Sinai here. At Sinai, there was fire. There was fire in the upper room. Tongues of God came upon them. God spoke at Sinai. Um, 3,000 people died at Sinai. 3,000 people were saved when Peter preached. Uh, there's all kinds of great parallels. Um, what's interesting about this celebration is that Jesus rises from the dead, and we think, well, where was Jesus from the resurrection until Pentecost? Right? There's uh, a lot of time there. Well, Paul says he was seen by the women, he was seen by 12, he was seen by over 500. He, he was with the two on the road to Emmaus. Many people saw Jesus after the resurrection. Now, here's what gets my blood moving. If all three, four of these feasts were fulfilled in Jesus' first coming, that means the final three fall feasts are next on God's calendar. The very next event on God's calendar is not the opening day of the baseball season. 
or the Tokyo Olympics or the next election. The next day on God's calendar is the Feast of Trumpets, Rosh Hashanah. The Feast of Trumpets was a call, listen to this, to judgment. See, when Christians think of the rapture, the end of the world, we get all excited, right? Jesus is coming. Well, he's coming to judge the world this time. It's not going to be a pretty time. Uh, Trumpets were used as a call to war. Uh, They didn't have command and control in those days. You move troops by blowing trumpets. 1 Corinthians 15 said, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. 1 Thessalonians 4.17 said, The Lord will descend with a shout, the voice of an archangel. The trumpet will blow, and uh, the dead in Christ will rise, and we who are alive and remain will always be with the Lord. The rapture of the church, wherever you put it, we don't have time to get into that, is the very next event on God's calendar. And you might say, well, where are we? Well, let me tell you where, you, where, where we are. So, 2,000 years ago, Jesus fulfills the first four. Um, After the spring feasts were fulfilled, there was a long, hot summer called the ingathering. This is where they would take in all their crops, right? You and I are living in the greatest ingathering of souls for the kingdom in all of history, the age of grace. 2,000 years from every kingdom, tribe, tongue, nation, the Bible's been translated in almost every language. Uh, the great ingathering, the door of Noah's Ark has been open for 2,000 years. We are somewhere, I would assume, in late summer, maybe early September, in the great ingathering. That means the trumpet's about to blow. Now, once the rapture happens, the feast of Yom Kippur will be fulfilled. This is the Day of Atonement. This was a day of national forgiveness. Remember the the goat, the scapegoat would run into the wilderness and the high priest would go into the temple on this day once a year symbolically uh, for the cleansing of the nation. Say, Pastor Bob, how in the world is that ever going to be fulfilled? Read the book of Zechariah where God said, I will pour on the house of David, that's the Jews, and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, that's the Jews, the spirit of grace and supplication, and they, that's the Jews, will look at me on whom they've pierced, written 750 years before Jesus' crucifixion, actually written before crucifixion existed. And they shall mourn for me as one mourns for an only son. Zechariah also says, they will ask me, where did you get those wounds? And he said, in the house of my friends. Matthew 24, Romans 9 to 11, where Paul said this is the day when all Israel would be saved. Go back and read Isaiah 53. He, Jesus, was wounded for our transgressions. The chastisement of his peace was upon him. By his stripes we were healed. Who's looking back? Not me and you. That is being said in real time when Jesus returns to the Jewish people, they will look at him and say, he was the one. He was bruised. That's all written in the past tense. And that will be Israel's final atonement. 
What a feast. Now we get to my favorite, tabernacles. Uh, Kids love this one, right? Uh, We'll study this when we get to numbers. This was the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. So uh, this was a cool feast where, look up on the screen, uh, every house would build a booth. Do kids still build forts today? And they all got their own room and everything. Why would they build a fort? Well, uh, but we built forts. I don't know if they build forts today. But, uh, but every, every family would build that. Imagine how fun that was. Go out with your dad, build a fort. Uh, it was like camping, right? They would go out all week and, my gosh, how can anybody live like this? Thank God uh, we have a house, right? But this is the way our ancestors lived in the wilderness and God provided One of the interesting things about tabernacles, it means booths, right, is that if you read Leviticus 23, there was a cloud of glory. Remember the cloud that followed them? It's called the Shekinah glory of God. It's the presence of God that followed them day and then at night there was a pillar of cloud. Um, Again, this is my favorite feast because of the person of Jesus. And I don't don't ask you guys to turn much anymore because I'm not sure how many people have real Bibles. But if you can get to John 7, I want to bring this out to you and we'll close here. By the way, uh, all the feasts celebrated by Jesus in the New Testament, you can find them all there. Chapter 7, verse 1, after these things, Jesus walked in Galilee. For he did not want to walk in Judea because the Jews sought to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. And his brothers said to him, depart from here, go to Judea, you and your disciples, that they could see the works you're doing, right? Now it says they didn't believe in him, but they were like family members, right? Like family, there's family members don't believe in what I'm doing, but they want me to be successful, right? And they're like, man, you got a cool thing going, why don't you go to Jerusalem? It's the heart of like religion. For no one does anything, verse 4, in secret while he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For even his brothers did not believe in him. Jesus said to them, my time has not come. And he remained in Galilee. Ooh, my time has not come. Now we read that and we think, oh yeah, 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 it's not his time to die. No, it's not his time to fulfill this feast. Jesus comes, middle of the week, begins to teach in the temple, begins sparring with the religious leaders there. Go way down to verse 37. On the last day, the great day of the feast, John tells us, Jesus stood and cried and said, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water, But he spoke concerning the Spirit who those believing in him would receive, for the Holy Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. On the last day of the feast, so everybody could hear it, Jesus says, if any man thirsts, if any man has a void in his heart, if any man has been left high and dry by religion or this life, if you can't fill that void, come to me. What he was saying is he was the Messiah. It was a messianic proclamation. Uh, Later, when he would come into Jerusalem, which Daniel prescribed the very day, 
to, a, to, to the literal day. That's why Jesus said, if, if the people don't say Hosanna, the very stones will cry out. They said, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That was messianic. Jesus on a donkey, messianic. All this showing he was the Messiah. When they laid palm branches down, uh, the same palms they would use on tabernacles for the roofs of those lean-tos. Why am I saying all this? Because John opens up by saying, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And you remember this? He tabernacled among us. Right? That Shekinah glory came upon Israel. Isaiah says, the Lord will create upon every dwelling place of Mount Zion and upon her assemblies a cloud and smoke by day and the shining of a flaming fire by night. For upon all the glory shall be a, the word is interesting, it's canopy, and there shall be a tabernacle for a shadow in the daytime from heat and for a place of refuge and for a cover in a time of storm. He's writing, looking way ahead, not looking back. Zechariah talks about a time when the entire world will celebrate tabernacles, when all the nations will come to Jerusalem to worship. But my favorite scripture, and one that we can hang our hat on, is Revelation 21, where the same author John says, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming out of heaven by God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle or the booth or the Shekinah glory of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, no sorrow or crying, nor pain, for the former things have passed away. There's a new world coming. God has a calendar. That's why this light affliction we live through is temporary. It gives us great comfort. God means what he says, says what he means. Fulfill the first four, he'll fulfill the last three. Jesus said, I'm building a place for you. Why? All this so that, like in Eden, the tabernacle, the dwelling of God would be with all of us. It's going to be a wonderful time. And listen, this is the final thing I want to say. I want God to be holy. I'm not looking for loopholes. I don't want God to be a little less than he is because it's a little more comforting for me. I talked about Robbie Zacharias last week, right? I never signed up for this deal because of Robbie Zacharias. Someone didn't come up to me one day and said, you know, Robbie Zacharias is a Christian. He's got a lot of answers. To, and I'm like, yeah, I'm in. Uh, no. I came into this because of Jesus. And I want him to be holy. And I want him to be, poor, to be pure. And, and on the times where I don't feel that way, I still want him to be that way. Because that's the only system where all pain suffering and you read on revelation it says all those things that commit abominations will not be there heaven is defined by what's there and what's not there what's not there is everything that defiles this world what will be there is the presence of god and that's something to look forward to